Holy God, today we come, as always, filled with a desire to know you better, to be closer to you and more like your son Jesus every day. We come thanking you for the countless blessings that we so easily take for granted. We come thanking you for family and loved ones who are there every day and then things change and we realize how precious they are. We thank you, Lord, for the strength to endure challenges and difficulties that are almost unbearable at times. We thank you for the support of the body of Christ that comes alongside us in our time of grief and need. We thank you, Lord, for eternal promises that we can count on to see us through the hard times. We give you glory and praise this day because we live in challenging times, but we have a hope that is reinforced by the faith and energies of generations of believers. So with them, we call upon your name and continue to offer up our supplications, our requests. And we do hope, Lord, that you can hope, uh, help us to find deliverance from our physical difficulties, our emotional, social difficulties. We hope that you can help us with our marriages and our jobs and our finances. We hope that you can, can show us a way through the, the difficulties that we have that seem almost insurmountable at times. We do ask you, Lord, to not only give us comfort, but give us deliverance. Not because we deserve it, Lord, but because you are who you are. And because your great love has been demonstrated in the most profound way as you gave your only son for our salvation, as you gave us deliverance from sin and death and a hope for eternal life, you have also given us a hope for an abundant life here on earth. And perhaps that doesn't mean abundance of wealth or prosperity, but it certainly, it certainly means abundant joy, an ability for us to reconcile all the difficulty and evil that we see in the world with promises and spirit-filled opportunity. Lord, when we think about all the things that we want to present to you today, we're overwhelmed, really. And this is why it gives us such comfort to be able to speak words that Jesus said were more than adequate. When they asked him how to pray, he said, pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. All right. Today's message is going to be coming from the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. So if you want to find that in your Bibles, now if you're reading one of the table Bibles, you'll find that on page 1031, 1031. Luke 10, 
actually starts at the bottom of the page on the right side, and then we'll jump over to the next page. We're going to read verses 11, uh, 1 to 11 and 16 to 20. I've been using the Revised Common Lectionary this summer. Some of you may not have realized that. It's a schedule of readings that churches have used for generations, and it's a uh, uh, not something we do because we're required to, but it's a nice tool to fall back on sometimes, especially during these summer months. As the old time preacher told me one time, it's a great way to keep the preacher from cherry picking. You got to take what you're given and you got to preach it. That's not such a bad thing, really. So let us read together then Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in this same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from the house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more honorable, more bearable on the, that day for Sodom than for this town. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So as I read this story, I was reminded of something that happened to me in Franklin, Indiana, many, many years ago. Uh, I was the associate pastor in a church there that's similar to this one in a lot of ways. And so it fell upon me to handle a uh, phone message that came from the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Now, some of you might remember that there was a Billy Graham crusade in Indianapolis several years ago. It's almost 20 years ago. And um, these people were calling me and our church, as well as many, many others, to begin the groundwork for this crusade that was coming to town. And I didn't really have any experience with this sort of thing. And I found it all very interesting because it turns out that they were planning two years ahead of time. That when they were going to a town to host a crusade or to, to have a crusade, 
they started prep work as early as two years out. I wanted to confirm this because this is the way I remembered it, so I went on their webpage and this is what I found. When the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association accepts a crusade invitation, a small office is opened in the host city and a temporary local staff is hired to assist with event planning. And it goes on to say that the most important job is mobilizing the churches. Hundreds, sometimes thousands of volunteers must be trained in sharing their faith, explaining the gospel, and helping new Christians in their relationship with Jesus. There's more details in the sermon notes, but this is what I found interesting, is when the counselors are trained and the stage is set, then it is time for the visible part of the crusade to begin, the part we call the tip of the iceberg, where producers, videographers, sound techs, lighting experts, translators, security guards, and so on. So two years ahead of Billy Graham getting on the stage and presenting the gospel to people, this simple message, there are people who come ahead of time to prepare the way. And I thought, how biblical. That is so much like the story we just read from Scripture. This is, this is why I believe Billy Graham was so successful. I don't want to go off on a tangent, but I've always had great admiration for him and his organization, if only because of all of the big, well-known evangelists, the celebrity evangelists, he's the only one that you have never heard of any kind of controversy over. He's never had financial troubles or any kind of strange or illicit behaviors. Everything about him has been above board. And I think it's this right here that proves that. I'm not here to preach Billy Graham, but I'll tell you, if he did all of his operations in the biblical way that he does these crusades, then that would explain to me why his ministry was above reproach. And there's a reason he's one of the most revered people of American history and it might just be because he was modeling the Bible and Jesus so well. All that being said, it made me think of it when I read the passage, and then I realized that Jesus was doing here the same thing that Moses did back in the Exodus, or actually the book of Numbers. So you remember that as the people escaped Egypt and they went out into the wilderness, they had to wander for a while. And there's a lot of people and things to manage there, and ironically, the biggest issue that Moses saw was getting the people's heads right, getting their way of thinking straightened out. And so he basically needed to evangelize the people of Israel. He needed to get them on the right track. As an aside, I just remind you that the whole story of the Exodus is not so much about God suppressing Egypt as it is about God changing the minds of the people of Israel. The people of Israel had become so accustomed to the Egyptian way of thinking that when God delivered them, the great lion's share of the work Moses had to do was to stop them from acting like they were subjects of Egypt and make sure they became more like subjects of the Lord God, Yahweh. And so he appointed 70 plus Eldad and Medad to be his ministers to the people of Israel out in the wilderness. And he did so with the expressed intention of spreading God's word and changing the hearts of the people. So Jesus was doing what we could argue was the same thing Jesus did before when Jesus was not manifest in the flesh, but present nonetheless as God 
to Moses. So Jesus is consistent. I find it remarkable that scripture is always so consistent. I am fascinated by the fact that our Bible is consistent throughout and that God's patterns are repeated and easily identified when you're looking for them. So what was Jesus doing? He was sending these folks out to prepare the way for him. He was going to come to town and it wasn't a crusade like Billy Graham put on, but you know what? He was coming to town, but not before some prep work had already been done. And he sent these 72 out and he gave them very specific instructions. The first thing he said was, is go without delay. Don't stop and talk to people on the way. Don't dilly-dally, get there. Now, Jewish custom, and really generally in that ancient Palestinian world, it was bad form not to greet people on the road. You know, if you came across somebody on the road, met them on the path between cities or towns and so forth, you would greet them, you would exchange information, you would tell them who you are and where you came from and whose, whose children you are, and they would tell you the same thing. Not unlike when two uh, people would salute each other. You know the origin of a salute, by the way? Now, I know you ex-military people already know this, but you know, the origin of a salute is really very simple. It's just a way of saying, nothing in my hand. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not harming you here. We're at peace with one another, you know? Um, some people say back when the knights were wearing shields over their faces, they would raise their shields so you could see them and know for sure who they were, you know, and who they weren't. And so, so this concept of greeting each other on the road is really important, but Jesus says, don't even do that. Well, it turns out that in Jewish law, the one reason that you would not greet a stranger on the road is because you are an urgent business. And so the assumption by people in that culture would be that if you buzzed right past them and didn't even bother to say howdy, it was probably because you were on a very urgent errand. So think of it like this. We have laws and customs in our community that most of us obey adequately that regard stop signs and traffic signals and lanes and all of that. But when an ambulance or a police officer or a firefighter is on a mission of urgency, they have permission to bypass the usual customs in order to get to where they're going. So this was the idea that if a person was on urgent business, then they did not abide by the usual. So, so just imagine Jesus is sending them all out with, with little red lights and sirens, and they're on their way to where they're going on a mission of urgency. He also told them to not pack any bags or take anything extra. Now, I was curious about that, so I did a little research because I wanted to understand that better so I could share it to you, with you. And, and what I found was is that there were basically, in those days, these sort of roving snake oil salesmen. You know, they were, they were philosophers is what they were. They were people who made their living traveling from town to town, giving philosophical discourses. Remember, this is a world that is heavily influenced by Greek culture at the time. And so it was very normal for these guys that they didn't really have a cure for everything that ailed you, but they had a word for everything. And some might say they were just blowhards who were making their living, making noise. And they carried purses and bags and things that they would put out in front of them when they spoke. 
And this was how they made their living. And so the, the reason that Jesus was telling them not to carry their bags is because he didn't want anybody to mistake them for one of those blowhards. He, he wanted them to, under, to be understood, to be on a particular mission. So the very next thing he tells them to do is when you get to town, you knock on the door, you offer peace to the people inside, and if they welcome you, great, you found your place of operation. If they don't welcome you, just excuse yourself and go on to the next place. Now, I thought about that one, and I realized we could all relate to that to some degree. I mean, what have you done in your neighborhood whenever you saw that the Jehovah's Witnesses or somebody were walking around town knocking on doors? How many of you closed your door and hid behind your couch? <laughs> My bride did that once years ago. We lived out in the country. I was at work. I came home. She said, yeah, some, some Jehovah's Witnesses or somebody came knocking on our door. It's out in the country. The kids, are, we have five little kids at home, or four at the time, little bitty guys. And she's like, I don't have time for this. I'm not even sure these people are who they say they are. So just to be careful, we're just going to close the door, you know, because and, and the reason they had to hide behind the couch is because we've got a big picture window in their little front room. You know, it's like they could tell we're in here. <laughs> so... This would be something along the lines of offering peace to a house and not receiving it back. <laughs> maybe, maybe not quite as, as hard-hearted, but the reason I mention that is, well, if you put it that way, you can kind of relate to what Jesus is saying in a way, because, because what he's saying is, is, is go and find someone who's receptive to your message, and there's where you begin from. And you know, whether you agree or disagree with the Mormons and the, and the Jehovah's Witnesses, the fact is they keep doing it probably because it works. Because sometimes they come across a home where they're going to be received. And where they are received, they can share their message and their message might change someone's life. Now, if you don't agree with their message, all I can say is, is we better be out there sharing our message too, you know, so give them some options. But that's a discussion for another day. So Jesus is basically saying, when you go ahead of me, Keep knocking on doors till someone welcomes you in and then eat whatever they give you to eat. I find this really interesting. He says, eat whatever they give you. Now there are two things that come to mind for me when I read that. Number one is, is that the priority order is present there. That, that it's clear that Jesus has a pattern that he's stating that he wants them to follow. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But the other thing is, is you know, when you insert yourself into someone's life and they welcome you into their home, well, it would be awfully rude if they offered you something to eat and you said, you sure you don't have anything else, <laughs> right? I mean, one of the things that he's saying to them is, is when you're welcomed into this home, then be a generous guest. Be a gentle stranger. Now, in most cultures in the world to this day, and certainly in that Middle Eastern culture, even today, breaking bread with somebody is a sign of peace. So, I mean, when you're eating a meal with somebody, it's just implicit that you are at peace with these people, that these are now friends. They're treating you like family. And so when you go into someone's home and they offer you food, they're offering you peace. Jesus said, go and offer them peace, and if they return the peace to you, then you found a place to begin your service to my cause. And there is what he says, eat what they give you, because that's the indication of peace. The next thing in his priority order is that they should heal the sick. 
Now, I've kind of interpreted that to mean not only that they would heal the sick, but that they would do good deeds, that they would do good works, that they would be building relationships with people in this community. So they go into the town as strangers, they find someone who makes them welcome, they break bread with them, and a relationship is established. And so from that relationship, they begin to grow their connection with the community. So there's relationship building. And that's what this whole breaking of bread means. But then the next thing that Jesus tells them to do is then start helping them with things. So I imagine they fixed a few leaky roofs and straightened up a few misaligned shutters. And, and maybe they also raised the dead, healed the sick, cast out demons and all of that other stuff. But they did good works. And if you look at the priority order, then Jesus tells them, now... Tell them the kingdom of God is here. So I think it's very essential that Jesus' pattern be followed. If, it's, if, it's, uh, if I'm going to make the case that the way that Billy Graham's organization successfully led tens of thousands of people to salvation was by following biblical patterns, then this pattern Jesus has established would seem like a logical way to approach bringing the good news to any community, maybe even our own here. You go and you kindly introduce yourself to people and where you are made welcome and invited into a relationship, you cultivate that relationship and you let that relationship build toward other relationships with other people. And this grows a sense of community that is now welcoming a stranger with an interesting message. And then you do good things that serve them and solve some problems for them and help them with the, the distressors in their life. And, and, and then you tell them it is in the name of Jesus that I have come and it is Jesus that I want you to be prepared to meet. That's a great pattern. Do you know missionaries in foreign countries have been doing that for generations? They go try until they are made welcome. When they finally are made welcome, they begin to do good works. They show people how to water their crops in dry lands. They show people how to solve medical problems. They help people with hunger and, and they bring peace where there is war. And, and then when they've done this for a while, eventually someone will say to them, so why did you come anyway? And then the missionary says, well, I'm glad you asked. You see, I was sent by Jesus, and he wants to come to this village, and he wants you to know him. And I was sent here to announce that. Makes sense, doesn't it? It's been working quite well for generations. Unfortunately, we don't do it very well here in America, where the church is everywhere, where there's a church on every corner. We don't do this very well. We just assume that people will come to church on Sunday and find out about all this. We just assume that they already know, and they're just lapsing. But it turns out that about 70% of the people in Indiana have no particular history with church and don't really know what Christians do or what they believe. And it turns out that about 70% of the people then that drive by out here on 56 don't pay much attention to our building because it's of no particular consequence to them. That presents us with a dilemma. Jesus goes on to say that wherever, he, wherever we are rejected in his name, it's him that's being rejected. So Jesus says, if they reject you, they reject me. 
And if they reject me, it's actually the Father they're rejecting, the one who sent me, their creator. They're rejecting the creator. When I was a young sales guy back in my 20s, uh, I lacked self-confidence significantly. And I remember the sales manager that influenced me the most saying, you know, Dan, the first thing you need to understand is it's not you they're rejecting, it's what you're selling. They don't want what you're selling. Now there's basically two reasons why they don't want what you're selling. You're either presenting it poorly and they're not interested because you haven't given them a reason to be interested or they just don't want it. Maybe you presented it perfectly, but they just don't want it. And that really helped me a lot. That boosted my confidence quite a bit, is to perfect your presentation, Dan. You know, and I'm talking about selling trucks now, not selling Jesus. But, but I learned to really know my stuff and to present the, in the car business, do they do walk-arounds? Is that what they call it? You know, with trucks, we do a walk-around and, and walk them around the truck and show all the features and benefits of the truck. You know, I got really, really good at that. And at least I could go home and say, well, I got a no today, but I'm sure I showed them all the reasons why they should want what I have. And if they said no, it's because they just aren't interested right now. They don't want it right now. And that's kind of what Jesus is saying, is you bring them the image of Jesus by being like Jesus in their midst and you offer them peace and grace and if they reject it, it's not you they're rejecting, it's the message. And if they're rejecting the message, it's me and it's the Father that they're rejecting. Jesus said that in the parable of the tenants, that's the renters in Gospel of Mark, that there was a certain landowner who built a vineyard on his land and he uh, planted vines and grapes and so forth and then he put in a press and he built all the necessary facilities to produce wine and then he handed it over to tenants or, or renters who would run the thing and then they would share the profits with him and after sufficient time he sent one of his servants to go and collect the rent or to collect his portion of the uh, proceeds from the vineyard. And they beat this servant up and sent him back to his boss, licking his wounds. And so the boss sent another servant. This guy was probably bigger, I guess. And he got beat up and sent back. And so the boss finally said, well, okay, I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect my son. And so as the son is coming, they realize these renters that this may be an opportunity for them. And so in their twisted way of thinking, the renters decide that they'll kill the son and then there won't be an heir to inherit the property, which means that they can have the property. So they kill the son of the landowner. And then Jesus says that the moral of the story is, is that the landowner is understandably disturbed by this chain of events and an appropriate punishment is coming. Now, that sounds like Jesus' way of saying, if you go in my name, you might get beat up, you might even get killed, but if you go and deliver my message and you do as I have told you to do, rest assured you have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear that is in the eternal scheme of things. There's no guarantee that you won't suffer because you've chosen to prepare the way for Christ to come to those who haven't met him yet. He's not promising that. He is promising you that you have nothing to fear. Well, if it's not you they're rejecting, it's the message you bring, then what do you have to fear, really? 
And if it is the body they can kill but not the soul, then what do you have to fear, really? That's what Jesus is saying to us. And I love how this story finishes out because, I, and I alluded to this several weeks ago when we were talking about a passage related to this, where Jesus is, you know, I'm picturing Jesus, he's back at Capernaum, he's, he's helping Peter with fish or something, you know, he's, he's, working, he's working in Capernaum doing something, and, and the, the 72 start trickling in from their mission. And they start coming to Jesus and, and they're like, Jesus, you ain't gonna believe this. We cast out demons, we raised the dead, we, we fixed this and we helped that. And people were ecstatic and they really received the word. And I could just picture Jesus sitting there listening to them with his eyes wide open, twinkling, just grinning from ear to ear. And he's going, good job guys, good job. Isn't it exciting when someone you love has a big win? Really? I mean, you know, your own victories are fun. But what is more gratifying than when you care about someone and you really build them up and you push them towards something that stretches them and then they come back grinning from ear to ear because they won. They got a win. And it's such a gratifying thing. And I could just see Jesus listening to them and just, just like, yeah, yeah, good job. You know, knuckle bumps and high fives and, and just all kinds of celebration about their successes. And then he says, but wait a minute. He seems to be saying, don't get cocky. Remember, the power that you experience is not the thing. It's the fact that your names are written in the book of life in heaven. That's the thing. Understand that what you did wasn't about the authority that I gave you over Satan. It's about my authority to put your name in the book of life and presumably the names of those people that you introduced me to. And so it's sort of Jesus' way of saying, don't lose sight of the main thing. The main thing is not power over enemies. Jesus has got that. I like that. You know, I, part of the reason I was picturing Jesus like just like getting really stoked, you know, listen to because because it's almost like he's saying, yeah, you know, I saw Satan come firing out of heaven like a bullet straight towards the ground. And I knew you guys were at it. I knew you guys were rocking it. That's that's kind of how I hear that story. It's just it's just encouraging, you know. So when I come back to what this means to us, it's really this very simple thing. We made it our vision a couple of years ago to be vital to the well-being of this community through Christian discipleship. Pretty basic mission, and it's really outlined here by Jesus himself. Go into the community and build relationships with people. Be, be in relationship with people who welcome the relationship with you. Eat whatever you're given, you know? Think about what that means, because it could be a literal and a figurative thing, you know? I, I find that... Uh, we went to the, the family festival a couple of weeks back with, the, with our uh, Latino neighbors in the community. Um, boy, I loved eating what they served, but I also paid for it the next day. Eat what they're serving, don't worry about it. <laughs> you know, I did it for Jesus. Um, but it also is sort of a figurative thing, you know. It's like, meet them where they are. Accept them as they are. Be at peace with them and offer them relationships. And then, and then in our community, offer relationships that change lives. Do good works, change lives, help make people's lives better because you are here 
with the message that Jesus is coming and he wants to meet you. That's what we're here to say. What I've learned is, is that if you'll take a risk and deliver the master's message, you will witness power from on high. You will see remarkable things. But I also know this, if you do nothing, you will see nothing. If you say nothing, you will hear nothing. If you don't plan on witnessing, you will not witness anything. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Now burn it upon our hearts. Make us courageous and willing to glorify you in every conceivable way, simply by being your messengers of grace and peace, good deeds, and welcoming people into a relationship with you. Amen.